have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. Academics can answer questions that no one else can. They can find things that no one else can find. And they carry and they can carry instant credibility to their opinions when they weigh in on the public debate. And no one does this quite like Richard Vetter, the distinguished professor of economics emeritus at Ohio University. He's had a long and interesting career engaging in, in the policy debate on issues like right to work, income tax policy, and what he's probably best known for, higher education. And he's done that as a professor and a, a columnist and advocate, a leader of a think tank, and even as part of a special study group commissioned by President Bush in 2005. Richard, welcome. I'm glad to be with you. So most professors teach classes and write papers. They don't engage in state or federal policy debates. How did you start? Well, that's a good question. I was chair of the economics department, which was, by the way, a mistake, both for the, my university and for me, uh, one year around 1980. And I got a telephone call from a congressional office asking me if I would uh, recommend someone to work in Washington, D.C. Uh, for the Joint Economic Committee of Congress. And, of course, I volunteered myself because I thought, hey, that would be kind of a cool change from the normal academic routine. So uh, after being interviewed by a member of Congress who wanted to uh, be sure that I wasn't crazy uh, or excessively crazy, a lot of people in Washington are already crazy, uh, I, ex I accepted the job and went and spent a little over a year working for the U.S. Congress in the course of that, of course, uh, you know, I developed contacts and friendships and uh, got to know a lot of people in the press. And when you start talking to people in the press, you start then are asked, invited to write op-eds and things. So, so I, instead of writing for just academic journals, which is what most professors do, and I had done a lot of that, I'd written a lot of uh, several books, I thought, well, what the heck? I'll write for the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal has a circulation of 2 million. Uh, the uh, Journal of Economic History has a circulation of 2,000. I said 2 million is better than 2,000. Uh, so I started uh, reaching out to a broader public in the 1980s, and I've continued that ever since. I have had, uh, for example, columns in the Wall Street Journal uh, every decade since then, um, uh, not to mention other, I, I had a call, I was doing a blog for Forbes for years, and many other uh, outlets, Bloomberg, and, uh, you know, we could go on and on. Um, so I thought the mission of a professor should be bigger than merely educating 30 or 40 students in a classroom, well, that's a very important mission, but it's not the only mission. So I've sort of took on a, a broader role and I have continued that ever since. All right, let's talk about that start because I don't think most people know what the Joint Economic Committee is and what did you do there? Okay, well, 
the Joint Economic Committee is a unique uh, committee of Congress. It's the word joint means it's half House and half Senate. So there are ten representatives uh, from the House of Representatives and ten U.S. senators uh, on on the committee. When one house is controlled by one party and the other house is controlled by the other party, makes for an interesting dynamic, which happened actually while I was there. There were 10 Democrats on the committee, 10 Republicans on the committee, the chairmanship alternating between uh, the Republicans and the Democrats. And so we had a a moderately bipartisan kind of uh, crowd of people, some very famous uh, senators uh, like Teddy Kennedy would be a good example, were on the committee. Uh, uh, and it, it had it had absolutely no direct power. It wrote no legislation directly, but it made it reports and issued reports that got a fair amount of attention uh, and uh, had some prestige uh, in and at the federal level, monthly hearings on the unemployment rate, for example, or on price changes were all uh, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics were were hearings before that committee every month, for example, things like that. So there's quite a bit of attention to what we did. Mm -hmm. What did you bring to the policy debate? Well, that is an embarrassing question, James. I'm sorry you chose to ask that. I was an economic historian, meaning I was interested in America's past, and politicians are interested in America's present, present, and maybe a little bit of the future, uh, the future being to the next election date, at least. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> be a little cynical about it, but that's about the truth. So, uh, but... Uh, it turned out my training was pretty good because as an economic historian, I had studied a little bit of banking history so I could talk about inflation and the Federal Reserve and those kind of issues. I had studied tax history and I actually had a, uh, written quite a few things on tax issues. I was a labor economist I uh, uh, of sorts. I had uh, done a lot of things on migration, uh, studies on immigration and so forth. So I uh, fiddled around with a number of areas which were of some interest to the Congress. And uh, so I I fit fit in pretty well, I think. And since then, um, you're you're a person that's uh, looking to to make policy reforms on the national stage. Um, Most professors don't do this. What did your colleagues think about Richard Vetter, the activist? Well, that's a good question. Some of my activism was a bit embarrassing to my colleagues because some of the activism uh, deals with issues that related to my own universities, ultimately to the, its own funding. Uh, uh, as in it, criticizing higher education funding. Yeah, it was even worse than that. We had a proposed, uh, we did have a very large income tax increase in Ohio in the early 80s. Uh, Background, 1970, there was no income tax at all in Ohio. By 1983, the uh, liberal Democratic governor had put in a 9.5% top rate income tax, which I thought was absolutely outrageous. 
And we did something, we, uh, a bunch of politicians that I allied with, we put it on the ballot. We managed to get a referendum voted on by the Ohio population to roll back an income tax increase. It failed because we had almost no money and the other side spent $5 million, probably 10 million or more in today's dollars, 15 million in today's dollars. But we were very narrowly defeated and in a sort of somewhat deceptive campaign. And then, but it turned the tide in, in our direction because everyone realized Ohioans were fed up with these very, very high tax rates, very high unemployment rates, very high stagnation. Same thing in Michigan. In Michigan and Ohio are almost identical in this respect. So what I was saying about Ohio, I could have been saying about uh, the Wolverine state as well. And so uh, ultimately the tax over years got rolled back. The Democrats got thrown out of power and this wasn't Republican or Democrat to me. That wasn't the issue. It was good policy versus bad policy. Mm -hmm. But it turned out that allied more often with the Republicans than the Democrats. which is ironic since my grandfather was chairman of the Democratic Party in your state, in Michigan. He was the state Democratic Party chair. He was the nominee for governor of Michigan once. So I come from a a very distinguished Democratic Party, uh, Michigan heritage, and yet here I am. uh, Lowering taxes in Ohio. Lowering taxes and doing nasty things, as most Democrats thought were nasty things. So anyway, it was great fun, except my colleagues often when they saw me on the street would cross the street to avoid me because they just didn't want, you know, things were tense for a while. Yeah. And that was before COVID. Yeah, that was before. All right. Uh, And so it was, this was your, I mean, you're in a rough situation being a critic of higher education. This is one of the most insulated and reform-resisted institutions. Um, but this is, a, uh, this is a case where you're like, look, this is good policy. I'm going to support it. Um, did, did having tenure help? Yeah, I was waiting for that question. <laughs> I, I, I have mixed feelings about tenure. There are arguments, good arguments, against tenure. But it, there are it is true that tenure provides protection for unpopular people making unpopular statements. In this day and age where there's so much uh, craziness in the universities and where uh, people in the universities are sometimes attacking their own colleagues because they don't like the statements they make and they're trying to get rid of their colleagues, the cancel culture and all of that, tenure actually sometimes serves a very useful and important purpose. And in my case, it was extremely important. Uh, The governor of the state of Ohio called a press conference to attack me, which I thought was the ultimate uh, moment of professional success for me. I said, finally, someone recognizes me beyond my local little classroom that I teach in, sometimes a big classroom. I often talk classes at 200 or more. But to have the governor attack is kind of cool, I thought. I, I wouldn't have thought that if I didn't have tenure, though, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the value that you brought to public policy. So um, uh, and to do that, I want to talk about prevailing wages. 
so prevailing wages, their policy that we had in Michigan, and, and it's in a number of states where if the government wants to build a road or a school or anything else, it needs to pay its, uh, the, the construction workers on that project union level wages. And this makes building roads and schools more expensive to taxpayers. Uh, but just how expensive can be a difficult question. And that's one of the, part of the policy debate is that they say, you know, supporters say it doesn't add anything. And the opposition said it adds a lot. And you worked on a paper for us that exploited a, a period where courts uh, said that prevailing wages didn't apply. And you did the math on that. It was an important piece. Like, uh, how'd you get in, engaged in that debate? Uh, well, I've been interested in wages uh, for ever since I became an economist. Uh, wages are one of the most important prices that we have. And so with that, by way of background, uh, and I had written before uh, the study you're talking about for Mackinac, I had written a book with a colleague, Lowell Galloway, called Unemployment and Government in 20th Century America, where I argued that the Great Depression was prolonged partly because of high wages reflecting policies similar to prevailing wage laws. Indeed, the prevailing wage laws, most of them came out of the Depression era. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the legislation uh, that uh, created it came about in the early 30s that led to uh, a rise in prevailing wage laws, both at the federal level, but little Davis-Bacon Act, to be specific, laws at the uh, uh, state level. And, uh, and there's a lot of interesting dimensions of this that uh, uh, are interesting, uh, most important of which there was an interesting anti-black dimension to this, uh, a racist dimension to this, that these laws were initiated at the federal level. Uh, uh, Congressman Bacon, who was from New York, it lived in an upscale area of New York, out of Manhattan, where the Hamptons are, you know, where all these. So they're going to build a, a hospital, a federal uh, a government, federal government hospital out there. And lo and behold, they're going to bring up African-American workers from the South to build this hospital. This was horrifying to the people in Manhattan and in, on Long Island. And we're going to do something about this. So we're going to pass a federal law that uh, makes this very difficult to happen. So uh, one of my joys of being a historian is I learn about all the dirty underlying truths besides some of this. And as you say, Michigan has turned out to be the perfect test case of all the importance of all this because of that fluky period. When was it, uh, James? 2012, something like that, where where you had uh, a... a, a uh, it wasn't an Overton window, but another kind of window. I don't know. Quite, in a way, maybe it is an Overton window. You had a, a, a natural experiment, really, in the state of Michigan on the you know, the role that uh, prevailing wages pay play. Yeah, it was. A, uh, and I only know this because I was just looking at the paper in, in preparation for this. But it was a period. Uh, again, a judge just said. Um, the prevailing wage rule doesn't apply. It's superseded by a federal law. And this is a period from 94 through uh, 97. It was around 30 months where these okay. laws just didn't apply. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but that but that's an important voice to bring to the debate. And this and it was a powerful voice because that was the policy debate. Like, does this cost taxpayers or not? 
And I look at something like that and I say, look, it's it's a proposal to increase the cost of construction projects. Like that's its essential thing. Clearly, it it should raise uh, construction prices. But it really takes someone to look at the numbers to demonstrate that that, uh, that is the case. And there is a happy ending on this story because it took a lot of uh, uh, political maneuvering, but we have eliminated prevailing wages. It's still an active policy debate because the governor believes that she can implement them in uh, even around the prohibition on them, but it's uh, it, it's an important coalition that academics have helped uh, helped advance. So I wanted to thank you for your contributions to that debate and uh, the, the the victory that that was possible. Well, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, uh, universities uh, were not alone. Uh, all sorts of uh, government construction, but they were paying. 10, 15, 20% more for buildings than was necessary because of this payoff to a special interest group. It was a, 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 a academic, it was a political shoplifting in a way. We were taking money from the general taxpaying public and giving it uh, to a relatively small number of privileged workers who had some political clout. That's wrong. It's morally wrong. It's economically wrong. It's just bad policy. <laughs> so uh, you've had, uh, again, a long career in being both both professor, a, a, a teacher, and a policy advocate. I think a lot of uh, younger um, academics that enter this one are kind of advised, look, don't talk about politics, like uh, stay within your profession, stay within your uh, your narrow field of specialty, um, what what advice might you have to younger uh, younger people who might be at least a little interested in policy advocacy? Well, you've raised an extremely important point, and the unfortunately the nature of higher education has changed in a way that makes uh, making uh, should we say unpopular statements more job threatening than it used to be. Uh, that is to say. The academic area uh, is increasingly intolerant of viewpoints that diverge from, let's call it, the norm. And the norm here is a progressive norm, a, a norm, an activist norm, uh, and it takes many forms. Most of your uh, uh, listeners, I'm sure, are aware of those. I won't go into the details, but that's what it is. So... I'm very careful in talking to, uh, I mean, I, I, I caution my young colleagues to get tenure fast by writing like crazy obscure papers for the Journal of Last Resort or whatever the name of the journal is that will uh, that eight or nine people will read, but it will get a credit for, towards uh, tenure. Get tenure, write papers on uh, interesting enough topics, but not too wildly political, and then get after you get tenure, uh, you can uh, become a little more activist, and maybe a lot more activist, and you can start getting grants from uh, various groups that uh, provide support and help for these kinds of people that we've just been, I've just been talking about, and they can get some funding and uh, live a pretty good life and even advance their career uh, in the profession uh, uh, re reasonably well. And uh, uh, 
But I am concerned that the academics uh, are increasingly, you know, afraid of reporting the truth and uh, telling what's right and uh, uh, good policy. That's why I want to give a plug for Mackinac here. That's why the non, there's two ways we disseminate ideas. One is through universities, well, there are many ways, but the universities are very important, but the private think tanks are also important. And some of them are on, should we say, left of center in the political spectrum. Uh, maybe the Brookings Institution would be the most famous of those. Some of them are considered to be to the right of center uh, in the uh, spectrum, uh, more believer in what we might call classical liberal uh, principles. And I think these classical liberal think tanks have been a godsend uh, for uh, uh, a lot of young academics. A few of them are even driven away from academia to work for the think tanks. They, they become refugees and living in place, obscure places like Midland, Michigan. <laughs> well, I want to talk a little bit about that because uh, and thank you for, for, for raising this one, because we use ac- uh, you know, academics for a lot of things. For one, just to review our papers, uh, like that's that's just an important an important thing. They've got expertise in some of these policy issues. Uh, most of them are more than willing to uh, um, uh, to review uh, to review what we write, just to make sure that it's up to snuff. Uh, they can give us the lay of the land in unfamiliar territory, as in like they've got some policy expertise. Like uh, um, sometimes there's an issue that you know the people on staff just don't know much about. We want to lean on their expertise. Uh, one of the things that I like to do is uh, is to have them talk to our interns about some of their policy work because, you know, our interns try, uh, some of them are interested in think tank work. Some of them might be interested in academic work. Uh, I think this is a good way to show them that there are many different ways to do, um, to do policy work. Uh, gosh, uh, instant opinions. I mean, that, that really helps, but uh, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of polit- or a lot of professors, just want to keep their opinions to themselves. And thankfully we do have a good network of people that want to engage with us. So I wanted to bring up just one more example of uh, some things that you've helped out with in the Michigan policy debate. Uh, Back in the early 2000s, there was a a drive from our higher education institutions that said, you know, the trick to becoming a better and more prosperous state is to give higher education institutions more money. And uh, one of the things that you do, it said, well, we can actually measure this because states give different amounts of funding to their state universities. Let's let's check it out and see if, if there's any relationship. And lo and behold, there isn't. Now, that's still an ongoing idea that's part of this policy debate. But that direct allegation, like, give us more money, you're going to have a better outcome, just doesn't happen in the state of Michigan anymore. And I credit at least part of that to your work. Well, thank you. It's generally true of the country as a whole. And that gets to issues of uh, which we don't have time to go into in detail, but I would maybe throw out, maybe we shouldn't give money to state universities. We should give the money maybe to the students, not to the producers, but to the consumers and let them pick where they want to go to school. And rather than give the money to uh, universities, and you have some fine universities in Michigan, by the way, 
And I'm proud of the fact that one or two of my students actually serve on the Mackinac Board of Scholars with me. Uh, Jason Taylor at Central Michigan mm -hmm. is the one that first comes to mind, but others as well. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that's, that's a good point you're making. Uh, so uh, I... I may have stolen that uh, that idea from you because that's been one of the things I've been calling for uh, in the state. Like right now, we give a lot of money to universities, and but what we give is based exclusively on what we gave last year, and what we gave last year is exclusively based on politics and not anything else. And we've been saying, look, as just a general improvement, fund the student, not the institution, and it's been a hard thing to uh, uh, to accomplish, mostly because universities uh, have their own political power, their their own their own agenda, their own their own arguments and converting uh, to a per student allocation means that some will benefit and some will lose. And for the most part, they're afraid of that. Yeah, there's a lot of waste in higher ed. Uh, I mean, just in, in, in crazy ways. My, my my favorite example is in sports. Uh, the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor is not only a great academic institution, but it's a pretty darn good uh, football uh, power as well. But Eastern Michigan, which uh, sits 6.3 miles away from the, the uh, uh, I, I, that's what Google Map tells me, uh, <laughs> from the stadium in Ypsilanti to the stadium in Ann Arbor is a, a trivial distance. And yet they, I, I remember there was a Saturday a few years ago when the University of Michigan was playing before 105,000 people in Ann Arbor and Eastern Michigan was playing before 3,000 people in Ypsilanti. Their rival was my university. That's how I know about this. I was listening to the game on the radio and uh, it, it's embarrassing because Eastern Michigan loses $25 million or more each year on sports. Crazy, just crazy. Uh, uh, that It's not a rich school. Uh, Ann Arbor is a relatively rich school. They've got a $12 billion endowment or something. Uh, and uh, yet the students there don't have to subsidize the football team. So there's a lot of anomalies in higher ed. And uh, uh, going to a funding giving the money to the students instead of the schools gets around a lot of these issues. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your work in higher, some of your work in higher education, because again, it's insulated. It's a reform resistant institution. You focused on this one. You've been part of the university. What are some of the things that you have accomplished? Uh, I'm ashamed that you, I'm not ashamed. I'm embarrassed that you asked that question because what have I accomplished? Nothing. Uh, I wouldn't say nothing. Uh, uh, I, w I served, by the way, at the on a fairly prestigious commission called the Spellings Commission at the federal level on higher education in America about 15 years ago. And we tried to push higher ed into doing some good things. It made some very marginal uh, progress. Uh, I think I and a lot of others have called awareness to the general public that higher ed is not a, a bunch of saints who are public uh, interested in serving the public. They're selfless 
uh, a little Mother Teresa's or uh, I don't know, uh, uh, people of, you know, Nobel Prize, Peace Prize potential uh, who are help, trying to help the world. The, the people in higher ed are like people are anywhere else. They're mostly rent seekers, as we call them in economics. They're out to have a good life for themselves, maximize their uh, uh, own uh, livelihood, both financially through more money, but also through lower teaching loads, better parking, uh, whatever the, the cause du jour might be. And uh, we're just like anyone else in that regard. But with all this government money dropping out of airplanes over uh, Ypsilanti and Mount Pleasant and Kalamazoo, everywhere there's a state university in Michigan, uh, not to mention East Lansing. Um, uh, With all this money, the the colleges and universities are sort of uh, protected or insulated against negative consequences of stupidity and selfishness. And uh, I, I think maybe we should try to uh, reform that in a way, uh, still trying to help young people uh, get a college education where, where it's appropriate. Some kind of times, by the way, it isn't appropriate. The big thing in higher ed now is the public is losing support for it. Uh, they're, they're, they're starting to say, why should, I, why should I go to college? Maybe I should go to a coding academy and learn how to be a computer programmer take a one-year course, or maybe I should become a welder. Uh, you don't need a college degree to become a welder. Welders make more money than English, uh, English teachers in high schools. Uh, maybe I should be a welder rather than, uh, you know, write, uh, be a poet. Uh, so uh, we're starting to see uh, some, I think, healthy changes uh, in the general public uh, uh, towards skepticism, towards some of the things that are going on in, in the universities. Yeah, I I think a lot of your career has been spent talking about things that are outside of the Overton window. And while higher education is a target-rich environment, again, their, their ability to, to be reformed politically is pretty minor. But yet you've also talked about some things that were out of the Overton window here in Michigan. Right to work used to be outside of the window. It's policy now. Again, we talked about prevailing wages. Um, you talked about income tax cuts. Like you uh, you've been on the forefront of a lot of these issues, and I can see why it might feel like you're not making progress. But I think, you know, shifting the Overton window is a difficult thing to do, and you've gone and helped out a lot of those policy debates. Well, thank you, and uh, and again, thank you, uh, uh, Professor Vetter, for uh, shifting the Overton window. Well, I've enjoyed this very much, James. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinaw with a C, like the island.